You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. All right. So I was going to, I really didn't think we were going to take this much time, but Barry said I can go till 10 o'clock tonight. So uh, just kidding. Don't want death threats. Um, As Pastor Max said, I was in the military and uh, I deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan. In 2006, my deployment was to Iraq. And I went to a place called Ramadi, which is in Al Ambar province, part of the Sunni Triangle. And at that time, it was arguably one of the most dangerous places on earth. I was with uh, Bravo Company, 1st Battalion, 4th Brigade of the 101st Airborne Division, Kurhi. And uh, our main responsibility in that deployment was to secure the alternate supply route, ASR Michigan, that led into the main battalion headquarters. And that is where we would, we would send the supplies, the beans, the bullets, and the band-aids to the main element who would conduct the urban operations inside the city. What the enemy was doing is they were laying out IEDs all along the road, and those are in, improvised explosive devices. So we had to guard the road and make sure that the enemy wasn't ambushing our convoys when they came in. So what we did is we set up uh, static positions, security positions on the road to watch the road all day, all night. We had all kinds of, we had million dollars worth of optical devices to watch those roads, and the enemy still got IEDs on the road. So we put in more positions. And they would find the weak spots in between our positions, and that's where they would strike. So we had roving patrols, and then the enemy started ambushing those positions. One of those positions was the one that we had furthest to the west. Uh, It was right at the end of our battle space, and it was near uh, the Marines' battle space. And that position was ambushed at one time, uh, a while while before we set up the second outpost there. Um, The enemy came over a high point. They came over a hill. They fired RPGs into the back of the vehicles, and they wounded a lot of our soldiers. We had to send them home. Uh, So then we countered, and we set up a position up on the high point so that the enemy couldn't creep in from behind again. What happened was that when we put that position up on the high point, it was a target for sniper fire. And so we had to make the windows small enough to shoot out, uh, but not big enough so that they they would be able to shoot us. Well, on one day, it was uh, July 24th, 2006, we took heavy fire. There was a coordinated attack on that position and some of the other positions, and we took heavy fire. The two soldiers up in that high point were being hammered. We had sandbags built up. We had all kinds of protective armor. They had on body armor on their chest, on their back, side sappies, neck gaiter that, that stopped shrapnel, groin protector, ballistic helmet, eye protection. And one of those soldiers was, one of our soldiers was still shot. The round came in through an open area, and it hit him where he didn't have any protection. It hit him where he was exposed. The other soldier, the team leader who was in that position, didn't even know what happened at first. He just saw him slump down to the back of the position. But the round entered through his armpit, and it hit him in the heart, and he died, pretty much died on contact. The, that soldier, U.S. Army Specialist Sampson, uh, he was a private first class at the time. He was then later promoted uh, he was obviously uh, did what he knew he was, he was willing to do, what he had sworn to do when he raised his right hand and swore an oath to defend our country. The team leader who was there with him, many months he struggled with that. He gladly would have taken that bullet for him. But that soldier, I believe, from what I know of him, was willing and able and proud to take that bullet for us, to fight for our flag and to fight for our freedom. What happened to him that day, though, is not uncommon in combat. There is no way to cover all of our weak points. There is no way to cover all of the joints in our armor. 
If you remember David, before he went to kill Goliath, he saw this giant mocking the armies of the living God, and he said, I'll take him. Saul said, well, let me put my armor on you. So he put on Saul's armor, and he he walked around. He said, I can't do this. So he took a stick. He took the shepherd's pouch. He selected five smooth stones and a sling, and he went out, and he took down that giant. But he couldn't move in Saul's armor. So we have to balance the, the necessity of mobility with protection. And unfortunately, this, this soldier, Special Samson, was killed. What happened in the summer of 2006 is not uncommon, though. In, in 1 Kings 22, you may remember that King Ahab and King Jehoshaphat, the king of northern Israel and the king of Judah, they went out to fight and retake the, the land from the king of Aram. And the prophet had prophesied to King Ahab that he was going to die in that battle, so he figured he would outsmart God. He would trick him, and he would disguise himself as the chariot driver, and then he would go out. So if the prophecy was going to be fulfilled, they would shoot for the, the, the king, which wasn't going to be him. It wasn't, he wasn't going to look like that. But it says that even though they were winning that battle, that a certain man drew his bow at random. He fired an arrow that hit him in the joint of the armor, and he said to his chariot driver, I've been severely wounded. Take me out of the battle, and he died. The Roman military tacticians knew that every army has weak spots and every soldier has weak links in his armor. They would set up their formations. They would organize their formations in such a way that one man's strong point would guard another another man's weak point. God also, much smarter than any military tactician, knows that we all have weak points. He knows that no matter how strong we look on the outside, that we have places that are exposed, we have spots that are vulnerable. And I believe that is one reason why in Genesis 2.18, God says it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. I will make him somebody for him, that vitally important source of strength in time of need to guard his weak spots. Ecclesiastes 4 verses 9 through 12 say, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, one will lift up his his companion, but woe to the one who falls when there's not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm, warm. How can one keep warm alone? If one can overpower him who's alone, two can resist. Why? Because a cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. That is not by default. That is not a mistake. I believe that we are designed for relationships with others. I believe that God designed us to need another, to need others. And I believe that, especially for me tonight, my wife is sick and we had bad weather, but she is my source of strength. And I believe that God has met many of my needs, guarding my weak links through my wife. Matthew Henry, the English minister uh, who died in 1714, he put it this way. The woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, not out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected by him, and near his heart to be loved. I believe that God formed woman from man, from a place in man that was there to protect his vital organs, his heart. He took her, formed her, and brought her back to him to guard his heart and to be guarded by him. So tonight, As I dig into the second part of what I'm sharing, which is the fourth part of this series, I want to talk about how do we fight for our marriage, not fight against each other, but fight with each other for our marriage, for each other, for the glory of God. 
the first thing that, and I've got a number of points here, and I'm going to, again, we're going to try to beat the 10 p.m. limit here, but the first thing that I, that I say, and this is, this is uh, combat 101, we have to know the enemy. The first thing I will say is that the enemy is not your spouse. When your spouse hurts your feelings, the enemy is still not your spouse. When your spouse lies to you, the enemy is still not your spouse. If your spouse commits adultery, if your spouse charges up $50,000 of debt on your credit card, the enemy is still not your spouse. That's first and foremost. I'm not saying that there's no element of responsibility for the spouse who does those things, but the enemy is not your spouse. So who is the enemy? Paul says in uh, 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 through 4, uh, that even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to, the, um, to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of glory of Christ. The God of this world, God with a little G, that's the enemy. Who's on our side? God with a big G. Paul says in Ephesians 6, verse 12, if you're going to study spiritual warfare, get familiar with Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. In verse 12, Paul says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. The enemy is not your spouse. The enemy is not flesh and blood. The enemy is God of this world with a little g. It is what Jesus says in John 10, 10, the thief, the thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Thankfully, Jesus came that we may have life and have it more abundantly. The enemy is the father of lies who Jesus says in John 8, 44, does not stand the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. He is a liar and the father of lies. The enemy is not your spouse. The enemy is the father of lies. He's the thief who has come to steal, kill, and destroy. When we lived in Georgia, there was a, a bakery there, a bakery slash cafe. And my wife was working in Lawrenceville at the, the county headquarters. She worked in planning and development. And I would take my daughter and we would go visit her. We would go to lunch at this little bakery called the Blue Rooster. And we would sit there and we'd order our sandwiches and we would sit there eating our sandwiches, not even tasting what we were eating because we were sitting at a table right in front of a long glass display case full of desserts. So my wife would be eyeballing the strawberry cake. My daughter, this is, if if you remember two weeks ago when I mentioned the pink purge where she took all of her pink stuff and princess stuff and got rid of it, this was before that. So she was eyeballing the pink icing heart-shaped cookies with glitter and sparkles and things like that. I was eyeballing everything. I'll eat anything with sugar in it and butter. So we would sit there and we would eat our sandwiches and we would watch all these desserts and look at all these desserts. And the baker would say, whatever you want, you just tell me. And if it's not here, I'll make it for you. You don't even have to pay me right now. You just tell me what you want and I'll bring it to you and we can just roll it all up and you can pay me later. When I talk about the enemy, the enemy is like the blue rooster. That's a fine cafe. I'm not talking bad about them. But I, I consider them with my high school boys and Sunday school, I used to teach them uh, until about a week and a half, two weeks ago. Uh, for about a year and a half, I taught them, and I would refer to the enemy as the blue rooster, the one who comes and says, whatever you want, if you can touch it, taste it, feel it, whatever you want, you just tell me and I'll give it to you. You don't even have to pay me now. You can pay me later. In fact, I'll charge that to your account. But I'm going to come and I'm going to get my payment. People who know me and they know my story, Pastor Mac just asked me, and I shared a little bit, uh, but I got, a, I got a longer story. I've got, I've got a history of charging up things on my account. 
things of the world that God didn't want me to have, but Satan was happy to give me. And thankfully, by the grace of God, Paul says in Colossians 2, verse 14, that having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, he, Jesus, has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Amen? So know the enemy. The enemy is not your spouse. It's the blue rooster. It's the father of lies. It's the thief. It's the, G, the God with the little G. The second part is we need to know the enemy's strategy. The first thing that I believe Satan wants to do, and this comes from my time in the military, is isolate us. When, when Satan isolates us and he gets us away from our support network, he gets us, he finds us, he fixes, fixes us in place, then he can finish us. Proverbs 18.1 says, He who isolates himself seeks his own desire. He quarrels against all sound wisdom. The Hebrew word in that verse is parad. It means to separate. It means to isolate. And let me be clear, there's a difference between solitude and isolation. Solitude is important. Solitude for the sake of fellowshipping with God and, and feeling the power of the Holy Spirit, like I talked about last time in the cleft of the rock, where I dump myself out and I surrender myself to God in solitude. That is glory to God. That is praise for God. That is my time with him becoming more like Christ. Isolation is where we cut people off for our own desire. Jesus himself and Matthew 14 says that he immediately sent the, the disciples ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. After he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain to pray. When it was evening, he was there on the mountain alone. He was in solitude. He was fellowshipping with God the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit. The next time we see Jesus, he's walking on water. Tell me what kind of quiet time that was. Mark 1, I think it's 35 or 37, it says, In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, he left the house, he went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Luke 5, 16, Luke 12, Jesus went off into the wilderness to pray. He went up on the mountain to pray. He spent the whole night in prayer to God. Jesus sought solitude to be restored, to be filled, so he could empty himself out for us. He didn't seek isolation, although that would have been the easy thing to do. So the enemy's tactic, number one, is to isolate us. If Satan has us isolated, when I was in the military, we did a lot of combatives, then he is in the dominant fighting position. We had a rule in our combatives that it is position before submission. If you want to submit your opponent, you want to choke your opponent out, you want to tap him out, you have to be in a dominant fighting position first. When we are isolated, Satan has a dominant fighting position. We have to stay with our source of strength. We have to stay with each other. We have to stay near to Christ. Once Satan has isolated us, he wants to get us into the kill zone. James 1.13 through 15 says, Let no one say when he's being tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. When lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. When sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. The two Greek words here for carried away, excel caminos, and enticed, delizaminos, the first one is a metaphor that's taken from hunting and fishing. It refers to prey being lured out of their hiding place to be killed by the hunter. Entice, this refers to baiting a hook or setting a trap, uh, using what we have an appetite for to catch us in that trap so that we can be preyed upon. If Satan is going to tempt me, he is not going to tempt me with broccoli and Brussels sprouts and beets or spinach. Satan is going to tempt me with cookie dough ice cream. Satan knows what I want. <laughs> Satan knows what I want. He knows what I like. He knows what I have an appetite for, and that's what he's going to lure me out with. 
These appetites are important. Um, Proverbs 23.2 says, and put a knife to your throat if you are a man of great appetite. We talked a little bit last time I was here about Genesis 3, when Eve saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was desirable to make one wise. So she took from its fruit and she ate. She gave to her husband also and he ate. Those three appetites, those three, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, John talks about in 1 John 2, 15 through 17, Matthew 4, Luke 4, when Jesus is led out into the desert and he's tempted, turned these stones into bread. He was taken up on a high point, showed all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, said, you bow down to me and I'll give you all this, like the blue rooster. He led him up to the pinnacle of the temple and he said, you throw yourself down from here. And then Satan quoted scripture to Jesus and he said, for it is written, he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will bear you up in their hands lest you strike your foot against a stone. He tempted him with the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life. And by the grace of God, Jesus did not sin. He quoted scripture back to him. He drew his sword, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And he said, it is written, it is written, it is written. Man, cannot, man will not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You shall worship God and serve him only. Amen. Amen. We have to be aware of our appetites. Philippians 3.19 talks about uh, the enemies of the cross. It says, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on worldly things. Their God is their appetite. They want the new house, that's their God. They want that Maserati, that's their God. They want the wealth, they want the popularity, they want the good feeling from that person. Whatever those things are, that becomes their God and they worship that and they serve that. What is your appetite? Is your appetite something worldly? Is your appetite godly? Is your appetite for happiness or is your appetite for holiness? What are you pursuing? A good way to know this, I think, is the acid test for a lot of people is what are you pursuing in life? Happiness or holiness. The appetites will tell us a lot. And that is what Satan will use to isolate us, then lure us into the kill zone. The next thing he does is after he tries to, after he fixes us in place, he tries to, what I talked about in John 10, 10, is the thief, he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I will be clear that the enemy cannot steal Christ from us or us from Christ, but he can steal our joy. He can kill our peace. He can destroy our testimony. And believe me, as a counselor with a lot of Christian marriages, I have seen him destroy Christian marriages. That's what he wants, the thief. What is the ammo that Satan uses? Satan doesn't have anything. And I will tell you this, and this is something that that I think a lot of clients who come in say, I can't do this and I can't. Yeah, you can. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Philippians 4.13. As I said last week when I was going through Luke, Luke 137, for nothing is impossible for God. Nothing is impossible with God. There is no power, there is no ammo that Satan has over us. We have been set free by the blood of Jesus. And yet we, we live lives like we're still held captive. The only ammo that Satan can use against us, and if you take nothing else away from tonight, take this. The only ammunition that Satan can use against us is what we give him. When I was in Afghanistan, I lived in a, uh, a little post about two kilometers south from the main forward operating base. And I had about 150 Afghan uh, police and army and their NDS, which is comparable to our CIA. And I had three or four American soldiers with me and we would launch out of there and do our military operations. We would link up with more of the coalition forces. 
And within my inner circle, I had 15 to 20 guys who I would trust them with my life. Outside of that, corruption was rampant. Couldn't really trust anybody. Well, there were some of those who were still living in our compound, but they weren't part of my inner circle. And we found out that they were selling ammo to the enemy. What they would do is they would leave the the post where we were. They would drive off. They would meet up with the enemy. They were related anyway, for the most part. They would fire some rounds in the air. And they would call in on the radio, say that they were being ambushed. And then they would sell crates of ammo to the enemy. Then they would come back and they would get a resupply. They'd get more crates of ammo. They would sell these, these soldiers who were making 70 to $100 per month, would sell these crates for thousands of dollars. So these young soldiers making 70 to $100 a month, a week or two later, walking around with smartphones. Tell me how that happens. Now you fast forward a week or a month, a little bit later, now we're going out on a joint patrol. I've got my small group of soldiers, and I've also got these guys from the larger group, and we go on a patrol and we get ambushed, and they get killed with a smartphone in their hand and a bullet in their chest. Jesus says in Matthew 16, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Two verses later, he says, what does it profit a man if he gains a whole world and forfeits his soul? What can a man give in exchange for his soul? Those those guys, what did they get in exchange for their life? A smartphone? They sold the ammo to the enemy that the enemy used against them and took their life. What do you want? What are you pursuing? What is Satan using against you? This is one of the main things that that we do is we sell. We give the ammunition to the enemy to use against us. If we deny ourselves the worldly desires that we have, we take up our cross and we follow Jesus, Satan's got nothing on us. If the taskmasters in Egypt, if they had entered into the promised land after Israel had left and been free, and they'd have said, I want you to start making bricks again, do you think Israel would have started making bricks? Of course not. That's why we don't have pyramids in Israel. That's why they're in Egypt. And yet Satan comes to us, to to those of us who've been set free, and he starts telling us what to do. You're going to be afraid. You're not not going to do this job. You're going to cheat. You're going to steal. And we do what he says, like we belong to him, but we don't. We belong to Jesus. We've been set free. We've been transformed from the inside out by the renewing of our minds. We are no longer conformed to this world. And yet we listen to the enemy like he's our boss. The enemy only has the power that we give him. We've got to stop selling our ammo to the enemy. What are the kill zone issues? So the enemy, he's he's lured us in. He's got the ammo. He's he's using things that we have an appetite for. And I'm not going to have time to go over these, but all of these. The kill zone issues are parenting. I saw a research study. uh, It's just been confirmed that the fastest moving land animal is a toddler whose mother just asked what he has in his mouth. (laughs) And so how will you catch that fast-moving land creature? I've got a toddler at home. You're not going to do it alone. And once you catch it, how are you going to tame him? We need to be with each other. And yet parenting is one one of those topics, one of those things that I see day after day. It's one of those kill zone topics that it is not bad in and of itself. But it's how you come in and how you engage in that that determines whether or not you're going to be closer together or you're going to be pulled apart. Some of the issues that regard parenting are, should they go to public school? Should they go to private school? Should they be homeschooled? Should we spank or not spank? What should they eat? What should they drink? Should they have social media? If they have social media, when should they start? When should they be allowed to use it? Should they play football and rugby or chess and be in the key key club? 
Not that you have to make a choice between those. Should our children court? Should they date? Or should we lock them in the rooms until they graduate high school? Family roles and household responsibilities, this is another kill zone issue. This is often an issue regardless of whether or not the husband or wife work. They still tend to disagree about who's going to do what around the house. I found a a list early on when I was counseling and it had all these different responsibilities. And so I gave one copy to my wife and I took a copy and I said, okay, you check everything that you think I should do and I'm going to check everything I think you should do. And at that point, I felt like I was doing almost everything anyway. I would take my wife's car to fill up gas. I would take the car to get the oil changed. I would empty the dishwasher, do the laundry. I mean, I thought I was being an awesome husband until I got that list back and she thought it was all my job anyway. And I say this not just because she's not here to defend herself. That was not by decision. Uh, But I I say this that for me, it really took a lot away from what I was doing. I thought I was loving my wife, and she thought that's what I was supposed to do. It didn't feel as, as giving for me. It felt like now she thinks I'm supposed to do that. It really took away a lot of the fun from doing that. But the family roles and household responsibilities, this is a big sticking point. Who does what when? Finances, Barry talked about that. Um, Do you have a joint account or a separate account? Should should you give more or less to charity, credit cards or no credit cards? How much should you tithe? How much should you save for retirement? How how much should you spend right now? Should you save for the kids' college or should you make them get scholarships? Should you buy name brands or shop at Walmart, Ross, TJ Maxx? I mean, these are the things that I see also. And the finances are a big sticking point. I work a lot. I'm a uh, a sexual addiction therapist, an associate sexual addiction therapist. I work with a lot of people who struggle with contemporary pornography addiction or they struggle with sexual addiction. And they will come in and they will tell me everything until I ask them about their finances. When I ask them about their finances, they're like, that's none of your business. Finances are, are a tough spot for a lot of people. A lot of people, they get very, very sensitive and defensive about their finances. Sex issues, I was going to hit on this last time. I didn't really have time to finish, but the three things that I didn't get on are how to identify and work with personality, uh, how to draw out and cultivate spiritual gifts, and sex itself. And it's probably good I didn't get to that last time I was here. But sex, I believe, is an important part of a healthy Christian marriage. And notice that I said it is a part. It is not the part, it is not the most important part, but it is a part. I think there's a lot of uh, disagreement, a lot of uh, discussion and arguments and these kill zone issues and sex is one of them. The frequency, who does what, when, all these types of things, sex is one of those, one of those topics. Family, uh, that used to be more in-laws, but now that's also stepchildren with all the blended families that we have. Uh, you're doing more for your kids than you are for my kids, things like that. That's another kill zone issue. Uh, friends, there are a lot of people who made friends when they were single and they want to carry those into the relationship. Uh, That's obviously a sticking point. Career, that's also another one. When it comes to family, I encourage my clients to remember that your most important family member is your spouse. When it comes to friends, I encourage my clients to remember that your best friend is your spouse. When it comes to career, I remind my clients that as my brother or my sister in Christ, your number one job in life is to glorify God. And one of the best ways you can do that is love your spouse. The next part is... Knowing the, the kill zone issues is becoming aware of the weak links in our armor. I talked about how important that is, about how that one soldier was shot in the armpit. Uh, we all have vulnerable states, and they're different for different people. 
So what are your vulnerable states? The ones that I see the most are when you're sad, sick, scared, hungry, angry, lonely, tired, bored, or injured, you're in a vulnerable state. If you enter into the kill zone and you want to talk about parenting, which is an issue of conflict, and you haven't eaten, or you're tired, or you've been feeling lonely all day, so you're not really happy with your spouse anyway, you're going to get hit. And it's, it's Satan lures us into that. We're in a vulnerable state. And that's one thing that I encourage my clients to do also is when you're in a vulnerable state, say, let's talk about this tomorrow. Let's talk about this a little bit later. Uh, I had hoped to talk more about uh, these vulnerable states and how they affect the brain, how our cognitions and our feelings are affected by the states, but I'm not going to do that tonight. Uh, talk about a couple, though. One of the vulnerable states I mentioned was lonely, and I want to hit on this one because I think it's very important, and it applies to the church here. When I was in Georgia uh, about six, seven months ago, I was part of a training exercise with a, a bunch of counselors. There were about 50 of us. And the instructor asked everybody in the room to picture the most vulnerable they've ever been, the most scared that they've ever been. And then in that moment, when you're feeling that, you're thinking those thoughts to think, who would you want to come to you in that time of need? And when that person comes to you, what would you want that person more than anything else in the world to say to you at that moment? And then the instructor instructor asked everybody to write that down and to memorize it. Then she took half the class, 25 or so people sat them down in chairs and the other half the class stood behind them and she put on some nice music or something. And she said, now what I want you to do is I want you to whisper into the ear of the person in front of you what you would want said to you. The thing that I heard said, spoken in my ear more than anything else was you are not alone. And 50 people in their most vulnerable moment, when they were most afraid, the thing that they would want said to them more than anything else was you are not alone. When I talk about the vulnerable states being lonely, and I mentioned last time that the very first thing God said is not good is for man to be alone. Loneliness is an extremely vulnerable place. Proverbs 27, 7 says, A sated man loathes honey, but to a famished man any bitter thing is sweet. When couples come in and I see that one, one spouse, their needs are not being met, they're lonely, they've been feeling like they're alone, I'm thinking to myself, that's prime time opportunity for an affair. Because even a, a, a dumb rock appears to be honey for that person who's starving for something sweet. Another vulnerable point that I want to hit on real quick is, is tired. Uh, we have to, when I work with my clients, I, I definitely deal a lot with the outer world, but I really try to focus on the inner world, the innermost part of your being. When we are tired, when our diet's off, our sleep is off, our exercise is off, when we're taking substances, our inner world is not what it is supposed to be. It is not where it needs to be in order to live our lives in accordance with God's word. We're off. We're vulnerable. When I was in Army Ranger School, we, would, we didn't sleep very much. Some nights we would sleep a couple of hours, and so we would sleep, but it wasn't while, when we were supposed to sleep. It wasn't in a bunk bed. We would sleep while we were marching. We would sleep on airplanes right before we jumped out of the airplane. Uh, we weren't really getting quality sleep. Sometimes while we were marching, we would take a security halt, and we would kneel down, and I would nudge my buddy like, hey, are we going to move? To just find out it's not even a person, it's a rock or it's a tree. They've already left. I fell asleep. I didn't even know it. And I'd get up and rush up behind them. The last thing you want to do is get caught falling asleep in ranger school. So I'd run up behind them. The same thing is true that when we as believers, we get tired 
uh, we lose track of who we're really following. We lose track of who we're with and we are vulnerable for attack at that time. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, and I think Pastor Max spoke on this the first night, but it says, be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Do not give the devil an opportunity. When Satan attempted Jesus in Luke 4, it said in verse 13 of chapter 4 of Luke, that after he had finished, after the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. Satan, who Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 8, when he says, be of sober spirit, be on the alert, your adversary, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He is always looking for an opportunity. When you are in one of these vulnerable states, when you are sad, sick, scared, hungry, angry, lonely, tired, or bored, injured, you are in a vulnerable state. And the lion that Peter talks about is just waiting for you, waiting to devour you. My answer for that line is that I have a lion too the Lion of Judah. Amen. There's a, a proverb in Persian and it says, It means that in the line of men, I take out my sword and from the mouth of the lion, I take back my rights. The lion that Peter talks about in 1 Peter 5, 8, I will take back my rights from him with the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. When I'm in a vulnerable state, I have to get myself back right with God, right with my support network, and I've got to make sure that my strength is coming back to me and the word of God is what I use to do battle. We need to get familiar with the enemy's weapons. Uh, John Gottman, he referred to what's called the four horsemen, criticism, contempt, defensiveness, and stonewalling. Criticism is, why did you wash my red sweater with my my white pants? Defensiveness is, the husband says, well, you left my golf police outside. There's no asking for forgiveness. There's no apology. There's nothing. He's defending himself and basically saying, well, you did the same thing. Now I'm using the wife in this situation. The wife then says with contempt, even our four-year-old can do laundry better than you. Now she's taken the criticism and she's made it personal. She's using sarcasm and negative body language to cut him down. And now the husband who men are more, more prone to emotional flooding His prefrontal cortex is flooded with blood. He's seeing through a cloud. He can't really see. His amygdala, which is the fear center, is activated, so it's fight, flight, or freeze. He's got a decision to make. And the decision that he most often makes, in my experience, is to stonewall. Whatever. Talk to you later. And he goes, and he goes into the other room, or he goes outside to the workshop or the garage, and immediately when he leaves, he starts to relax. He starts to feel better. And so begins the dance. The next time that happens, the husband defends himself, the wife fires back, the husband stonewalls. And further and further and further, and if you remember one of the first things I said is that Satan wants to isolate us, well, he's doing a good job with this couple. This is what I call dirty dancing. This is when the criticism and the contempt leads to defensiveness and stonewalling, and Satan is getting what Satan wants, which is to tear apart a couple, which is to model the love of Christ for the church, the submission of Christ for God the Father. Other weapons aside from the four horsemen are what we call in psychology cognitive distortions. These are dichotomous thinking, black or white thinking. Now that's, you lied to me today, therefore everything we've ever done together has been a lie. General attribution error, you made this mistake because you're a jerk. Although I did the same thing yesterday, I did it because I was tired and I didn't sleep well the night before. So I take what you did, the same thing I did, but I make it personal for you. And for me, I base it on my situational 
circumstances. Minimizing, maximizing, you minimize your partner's strengths and you max, maximize his or her weaknesses. Overgeneralization, a lot of these things, when I sit down with a couple for the first time, I ask them to be careful with these. Overgeneralization is a big one. Try to stay away from you always do this, you never do that. Because if your partner can find one time where you're not correct, they discount everything you just said. Emotional reasoning, I feel it, therefore it is true. I feel like you're lying right now, therefore you're lying. The heaven's reward fallacy, God is honored by me being a doormat and he'll reward me when I get to heaven. So you can beat me, you can rob from me, you can do whatever you want because God's gonna be glorified in that. And I think there are situations, we've got a lot of brothers and sisters in Christ who are suffering for the sake of righteousness. We also have a lot of people who needlessly are enduring abuse and things like that here based on this cognitive distortion. Catastrophizing, assuming the worst will always happen. And then the last one, and this is pretty self-explanatory, mind reading. Uh, Thinking you know what the other person is thinking, you don't. Uh, Another thing that Satan will use is bringing up memories of our own trauma history. And when I was in Afghanistan, I've shared this a number of times with my clients, but uh, I was involved with a lot of death, violence, suicide bombers, engagement with the enemy. One day I was driving to work and I was coming down 280 by Highland Lakes. I live out in Chelsea. And that 18-wheeler was burning his clutch or riding his brakes. And just like that, I was back in Afghanistan. I was standing at the site of a suicide bombing and I could smell it, I could feel it. And although I was in my car on the way to work on 280 in Birmingham, mentally and emotionally, I was back in Afghanistan. Sometimes, now if my wife had been next to me, she would know this too because she can pull me back. But sometimes I may be talking to my wife and something happens and it triggers me. This is something that Satan will use. It could be a smell. A woman who may have been abused by somebody who wore old spice, she smells that smell and like this, she's triggered. A combat veteran who's in the food court at the gallery and their son drops the tray, all of a sudden he's triggered. He yells at his son. His son says, what's wrong with you, dad? And dad thinks to himself, what is wrong with me? He's being triggered by a trauma history, by his own memories. Family of origin issues. Um, these, are, these are very significant. Um, my, and I got permission to share this. My, uh, I think it was two or three Christmases ago, um, my father-in-law, uh, he had this family of origin tradition where you try to guess everything that you're getting for Christmas. And so when he would give a Christmas present, he would take a small gift and he would put it in a big box and he would pack it with rocks and things like that so that nobody could guess his gift. I see people smiling. Well, my mother-in-law didn't have that tradition. And so when he guessed every single gift that she gave him, her response was, you ruined Christmas. And he's sitting here thinking, I should get a high five and a pat on the back. And what he got instead was, you ruined Christmas. That's a heavy burden to carry. I think this is one example of family of origin issues. When I, when I met my wife and we got together, I believe we were even married, we were at my in-law's house and we left there and she said, what's wrong? Are you mad at me? I said, no, why? She said, well, you haven't even kissed me since we've been here. So of course not, we're at your parents' house. <laughs> my wife is thinking like, if you love me, you're gonna kiss me, you're gonna hold me, you're gonna, you're gonna hug me. And my family of origin, now my dad was a pastor before he became a counselor. I was in the mission field for the first 10, 11 years of my life. We would see people sitting in church and whether they told me or not, I would hear them talking in the car on the way home from church that, oh, well, that boy, he was, he was hugging her too much or something like that. To me, I grew up thinking public displays of affection were kind of trashy. Well, that's not my wife's family of origin. Once I knew that, 
I started kissing my wife at my in-law's house. I started hugging my wife. In fact, if my wife didn't hug me or kiss me back, I would be asking her, what's wrong with you? Are you mad at me? I learned it like I talked about last time. I learned the rules. I had a couple early on, and this will be my last example on this one, but the husband had done something wrong and the wife was very upset. And so the husband tried to make it up for her and he bought her a lot of gifts and he did a lot of things. And the wife was still very, very angry. And so during the counseling session, the wife said, but he never said he was sorry. And I said, okay, so let me get this straight. He bought you all these things. And I'm not going to tell you what all these gifts were, but they were very pricey. He bought you all these things, but you're upset because he did not tell you that he was sorry. And she said, yes. And my family, it doesn't matter what you do. You say you're sorry. The husband was blown away. He said, in my family growing up, it doesn't matter what you say. Talk is cheap. If you, if you feel sorry, you show it by what you do. And here again, they were button heads over a family of origin issues, something that Satan will use to tear apart marriages. Another weapon of Satan is just. It's just lunch. It's just coffee. It's just a hug. It's just a friend request. It's just one kiss. It's just one night. It's just an old high school friend, an old high school sweetheart. It's just this one time. And then he's got you. Deceptive escape routes. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you are able, but with temptation will provide the way of escape. Why? So that you may be able to endure it. And yet Satan funnels us into a place where we feel like we have no choice. We're stuck. And the escape that Satan gives us is actually the trap that he set for us. It's substance use and abuse. It's infidelity. It's pornography. It's lying, cheating, stealing, even suicide. These are the deceptive escape routes that Satan sets for us. Pornography, and I don't have a lot of time to talk about this right now, but I would say that one of the big things when I first started working as a sexual addiction therapist, I would work and I would tell a lot of the women, you know, it's not, it's not about you and they would get really mad at me. But as I, as I studied, especially one book called Wired for Intimacy, uh, what happens in the brain when, when men more so than women, but now women a lot also, when they're looking at pornography and that image passes through the retina, through the thalamus, up into the visual cortex, the anterior cingulate cortex, and the association cortex, down into this area that's called the sexual arousal center, down into the ventral tegmental area where dopamine, massive amounts of dopamine are released. The, the stress that builds up is released. And the big thing of this, that although there's a ton of dopamine that mirrors the same dopamine release of heroin and ecstasy, don't tell me pornography is not addicting. The, the dopamine release mirrors that. The big thing that makes pornography so addicting is that the amygdala, which I talked about earlier, which is the fear center of the brain, that is deactivated. So on top of all the dopamine and all the pleasure that you feel, all of a sudden your fear is gone. For young, young adolescents who are exposed or they find a way to get to pornography because of the three A's, it's accessible, it's affordable, and it's anonymous. And they go in and they find that way to escape all their anxiety from school. What if I trip or spill my milk and people laugh at me? What if I don't have a date to the homecoming dance? I can escape. And it's the most reliable way for these young people to escape. And we have people where when years ago, you had to go into a dirty bookstore. You had to go somewhere where people might see you. you there could be people sitting in the church who are looking at pornography on their phone. It's so easy. And it's a deceptive way of escape that Satan uses. 
thinking that, that think, making you think that you're going to be free and really you become a slave. All right, so how do we defend? I'm going to try to run through this. We fight back. We put on the full armor of God. We know the six pieces that Paul talks about in Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. If you can't remember all those pieces, remember Romans 13, 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. That is the armor of God. Put on Jesus. Uh, We take cover in the shadow of the Almighty. Psalm 91 says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for it is he who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and bulwark. You will not be afraid of the terror by night or the arrow that flies by day or the pestilence that stalks in the darkness or the destruction that lays waste at noon. A thousand will fall at your side and 10,000 at your right hand, but it, it will not approach you. You will only look on with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked for you have made the Lord my refuge, even the most high your dwelling place. The next thing we do, we put on the armor of God, we find shelter in the shadow of the Almighty, and we fight back. How do we fight back? Number one, we do what what I talked about two weeks ago. We cultivate the relationship. You want to fight against the enemy, you cultivate the relationship. You spend time together. You spend time with God in the cleft of the rock, the objective rally point, if y'all remember, the golden hour together, dating together, seven to ten hours per week. I don't think I said per week last time. Seven to ten hours per week to start of quality time. And you try to build that up to 14 to 20 hours between husband and wife per week. You learn to speak each other's love language. You learn to meet each other's emotional needs. You learn the rules. You become creative. These are all things that I talked about last time. The other thing you have to do is secure the entry control point. When I was in Paktika province in Afghanistan, I, was, I had a, a small section of the provincial governor's compound where I lived with my soldiers. And one morning, about mid-morning, uh, we heard a loud explosion and the windows rattled and we knew something bad happened. So I grabbed one soldier, we took our weapons and we went down to the entry control point, the ECP. When we got there, it was February 2009, uh, we saw a catastrophe. Body parts, basically what had happened was a suicide bomber had come in, it was a beggar. Uh, he was seen often in the marketplace and by the mosques and he went to the first checkpoint and he asked the policeman for food. And they said, no, we don't have any food. Go and ask those guys. So they ushered him through to the next checkpoint. He asked them for food. And they said, no, we don't have any food. Go ask those, those guys. So he kept on walking. And he found seven or eight Afghan policemen. And they reached out to offer him food. And he detonated his explosives. And he killed all of them. If we don't secure the entry points of our homes and our families and our marriages, we are in big trouble. What are some of the things that get in deceptively? These are social media, Netflix, cable, books and magazines, music, gossip, thoughts, ideas, conversation. I'm not saying to cut all this stuff off. I'm just saying be careful because these are the things, these, these thieves and, and crooks and, and, and the types of people that we allow into our house through social media and through television, we would never let them walk through our door. But they find these back doors, they find the entry points into our homes and into our families and into our marriage. We have to secure the entry point. We also have to establish strong boundaries. We have strong boundaries. We need strong boundaries around ourselves, around our our marriage, and around our family. Strong boundaries are not too rigid, and they're not too porous. Proverbs 25, 28 says, Like a city that is broken into without walls is a man who has no control over his spirit. We need to have boundaries, strong, secure boundaries that have doors, 
so that we can let people in and we can also push people out. Nehemiah, who the cupbearer of the king, when he was first released to go back and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, that's the first thing he did was rebuild the walls, start getting busy rebuilding the walls so they'd be protected from the enemy. And in Nehemiah 4, verse 14, it says that when he saw the fear of the people, he rose and he spoke to the nobles, the officials, the rest of the people, and he said, do not be afraid of them. The governors surrounding them were making threats. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers and your sons and your daughters and your wives and your houses. Three verses later, he says, and those who were rebuilding the wall and those who carried burdens took their load with one hand doing the work and the other carrying a sword. We set boundaries around ourselves again, being guided by the word of God, our sword. But we have to have strong boundaries. We have to find the enemy caches. Uh, I'll skip through this. When we find the strongholds that the enemy has in, in our life, we have to sort those out and we have to clean those out. I've shared before that Proverbs 14, 4 says, where there's no ox, the manger is clean, but much revenue comes by the strength of the ox. If you want to plow a good field and harvest a good crop, you need an ox. But if you got an ox, you're going to build up a lot of stuff in the, in the, the stable. You got to clean that out. If you want to serve God, you got to make sure that you're still cleaning out your stable. We got to make sure that we're purifying ourselves and taking out all the strongholds and the caches that Satan has set up. We have to be intentional and be consistent and find a way to create a, a way to measure the change. We have to measure the change. So when couples start working together, one of the first things I do is how do we measure the frequency, intensity, duration of this behavior? If you're meeting each other's needs and you're speaking each other's love language, how will you know if that dies off? We have to be diligent about that. I was kayaking about a year and a half ago with my friend on Locust Fork and I dislocated my shoulder. About three months later, I took a bunch of kids rafting up in North Carolina and hiking. I dislocated my shoulder three times in one day. After that, when I would sleep at night or pick up a pencil, I would dislocate my shoulder. It would pop out. So what I had to start doing was when I would sleep at night, I would tie my arm down to my side because I knew that while I was asleep, I might move my arm and my shoulder would pop out. We have to be diligent in the way that we love our spouse. We have to be diligent in the way that we live our lives for the glory of God, even if that means tying these things to us. Proverbs 3, 3 says, do not let kindness and truth leave you, bind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart. If that's what we have to do, then that's what we need to do. We need to train and discipline ourselves before we get into combat, before we get into conflict. I never taught my soldiers how to load their weapons when we were already in a firefight. If I did that, I was a bad leader and they were probably going to get hurt. I would teach them and train them long before we ever deployed to a combat zone how to fight. Well, same thing with the couples. You don't wait until you get into a conflict to figure out how to, how to ease that, how to work your way out of it. You do that beforehand. These kill zone issues are not anything new. You probably already know what your kill zone issues are. So if it's parenting or financing, you talk about that before you get into the conflict and you find ways that you can remind each other that you love each other, that you're with each other. One last thing I want to say on this and then I'll finish up is I've talked a lot with a lot of military terms and I try to blend the psychology and the theology and the military together because that's my, that's my background. But I also want to emphasize for the men so that the women don't think I'm taking a side here that one of the greatest things that I think you can do for your wife is to be tender. I believe you need to be compassionate, that you need to feel the feelings, not jump out all gung-ho, like let's do it, let's fix it, but to really be tender to what your spouse needs. And so I would encourage you specifically to be tender to your wife. 
Otis Redding would be proud. The last thing that I'm going to say, and this is one of the main ways to win this fight, to protect your marriage, is to trust your leader. When I was in Afghanistan, I was called in to go find some reporters who had been kidnapped in Tangy Valley. And we showed up and there was an Afghan platoon and a U.S. Army platoon and a scout platoon. And they were all up at the top of the mountain. And we showed up and they were like, all right, let's go find these reporters. And they let us go. There were about 10 of us. I had one former DEA uh, officer who was with me and eight Afghan guys. And so we start going down the mountain. Everybody else is still up the mountain. Well, we were engaged with the enemy and they would shoot at us and we would shoot at them. And we started chasing them down through alleyways. And as we were running, all of a sudden I could see up the mountain smoke and I started to hear a sound and it got louder and louder and louder. The enemy left. I don't know where they went, but then we stopped like, what is this coming down the mountain? And all of a sudden I saw a gun truck turn the corner and there was my battalion commander in the TC seat. On top, he had an automatic grenade launcher, a Mark 19, and he came down the mountain for me. Now you ask me what battle I wouldn't go into following him. You ask me how far I wouldn't go to follow him. I knew that he loved me. I knew that he cared about my men. He came down the mountain and he left the way. See where I'm going with this? When I was in Afghanistan, again, last story, follow your leader. When I, when I got out of college, I spent my first year, I said in Central Asia, I actually went to Afghanistan. And I was there for a year before the World Trade Center got hit. And in July of 2001, uh, I was given permission to go on a survey trip to an area that I'd been praying about and asking to go to for a very long time. In the northern part, the northern territory where the Northern Alliance was, it was in the, the province of Badakhshan. If you ever look at a map of Afghanistan, you see that northern tip. I walked that northern tip by foot. It took me 17 days. After eight days of walking, uh, I en- ended up in this area, and we came to a village at night, and the next morning we got up early to go to the next village, and we were told, you can't go that way. There's a minefield in between. I said, we're certainly not going back. My feet were in bad shape. We only brought four or five days' worth of food with us. I was not going back. So I said, is there any other option If not, I'm going to crawl and sweep away the dirt, try to find these mines because I'm not going back. And they said, well, you have one option. There's a rich man named Mahmoud who lives in between these two villages. In Afghanistan and Islam, you're you're allowed to have up to five wives. And he had a wife from each village. So he he knew the way through the minefield. So they said, if you go and you find Mahmoud, he can lead you through the minefield. I said, okay, so we'll go there. There's a lot more to this story, but basically when we got to Mahmoud's house, he wasn't happy with us. We'd basically been eating from his mulberry trees and we had evidence all over our hands. But we spent about an hour or two and I love Proverbs and obviously Proverbs from the, the word of God, but I also learned a lot of Persian Proverbs. And we sat there eating mulberries and drinking tea and eating yogurt and we built a relationship. We formed a bond and I told jokes in Persian and he laughed and he told jokes I didn't understand, but I laughed. We made a bond. And he said, you know what? I was going to send my son uh, with you to take you through the minefield, but I'm going to take you through myself. So we said, all right, let's go. So we started walking. We made our way back to the trail and we got to a certain point. He said, you make sure you stay on the trail from this point on because all along the trail, there's mines. We said, okay, we got that. It's too easy. We kept on walking. We walked about 50 to 100 meters. And then he said, okay, from this point on, the, the trail itself is heavily mined. We're going to have to go off the trail and go down to the river. We were on the the border of Afghanistan and Tajikistan, and the river there was the border. So one of the first things that I learned when I went to Afghanistan in Afghan 101 is you never go down to the river. 
the mines that are left by the Soviet army, when the waters rise, they get displaced and they get covered by a thin layer of sand. You don't want to go down by the river, but that's where he went. So that's where we went. So we got down to the river and he got up on a big boulder and he said, let me see your walking stick. So I handed it to him and he started pointing to all these mines. And then he turned and he walked off. I didn't know what to do except to follow him. So I started chasing after him. Mahmoud, Mahmoud, give me my stick. He kept on going. I started to get a little bit more angry. Mahmoud, give me my stick. And he wouldn't give it back to me. Everywhere he stepped left a footprint. And I had to place my feet where he placed his. He jumped on boulders. He jumped on large rocks. The ground got hard. I had to look very close at where his feet were. But everywhere he stepped left a footprint. And I had to place my feet where he placed his. We finally got to the end of the minefield and Mahmoud turned around and looked at me with a smile on his face and he gave me my walking stick back. He said, in a place like this, it's better for you to have two legs than three. But if you had become tired, I would have carried you on my back. Mahmoud to me in this example is like Jesus. Sometimes he takes away things that we think we need the most, but he's doing it because he loves us. He's telling us that in a place like this, sometimes you need two legs, not three. But if you become tired, I will carry you on my back. 1 Peter 2.21 says, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his footsteps. If you want to have a strong marriage and you want to glorify God with your family, with your spouse, then you will walk in the footsteps of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus, our leader. We humbly submit ourselves and we come to you bound together as one body by his blood. We come to you bound together by your Holy Spirit. And I pray, Lord, that you will see this as good in your eyes and glorifying to you to strengthen the marriages in this church and in this community, that there will be a revival, that the people around us would see the joy within us and they will humbly bow before you and commit their lives to you because of what they see, the proof they see in the marriages of these men and women in this room. Father, I thank you for your grace and for your mercy. And even as I share all these things, these military terms, Lord, I pray that you will arm every brother and sister in this room. I pray that you will equip them to do battle against the evil one who has no power over us. I thank you for Jesus who has set us free, who died on the cross for our sins and by his blood and by his suffering has brought us to you. I thank you and I believe that we together as brothers and sisters in Christ, thank you in the name of Jesus. Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at valleydale.org.